You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're in 2 Timothy 2.22. We have been walking through this understanding of a letter that the Apostle Paul has written to his beloved child in the faith his son in the faith, Timothy. He is near the end of his life, and as he writes today, I want us to see that he is telling Timothy, listen, it's important for us to pursue Christ together. You see, everywhere that the gospel does its work, the gospel builds community. We are made to be together. Uh, The gathering of faithful Christians, the sharing of life of faithful Christians, as we will see later, is a necessary context for us to become like Jesus. And so this morning, I want you to know when we gather on Sundays, it's not just because we are the polite church folk in the South and this is what you're supposed to do. This is not just a cultural norm and rhythm that we have done. It's not so that our mama doesn't call us and say, did you go to church? And we have to run when she finds out that we didn't. We gather here because Jesus makes all the difference and we need each other. And Christ has told us not to forsake being together. We need each other. We need a family. Some of you have felt the sting and disappointment of families that didn't function or work like you had hoped or dreamed. Some of you understand the disappointment of family not working like it's supposed to, to, and some of you still bear the scars and still have unresolved conflict and issues internally. And so today, I want you to know part of God's good gift to us is in giving us a family brought together because of what Christ has done, adopted, made sons and daughters of the living God, and by extension, made family of God in Christ Jesus. And I want us to talk about what it looks like to pursue Christ together. And so as we begin in 2 Timothy 2.22, this idea of flee something and pursue something he used in his first letter as well. And sometimes when we look at this, we see that flee these youthful passions or desires or whatever your translation reads, and we get so caught up in the negative. When I was a kid growing up, I thought that following Jesus was this religious thing that you had to do where it was all about keeping the rules, which for me was a tremendous struggle because I didn't keep the rules very well. I still don't. I used to find myself frustrated, and I thought that salvation was, okay, God likes most those who obey best, and, you know, this is like the, let's see how you did versus how they did, and I'm trying to save myself, and I want God to love me, and I I want to be okay with him, and so I got to pay it forward, and I got to try to do some good works here, and I've got to be attentive to the poor there, and I want to make sure that I'm trying not to, you know, do whatever the list was at the time. But the reality for us is this, anytime that God tells us not to do something, it is for our benefit and protection. It is for our flourishing. And it is not simply the negative to run from something, but we are running to something that's better. 
When our kids were small, you know, when they're just getting where they walk around and you get them out in public and you'll be like in the grocery store or at Target and some well-meaning somebody in the store will come by and they'll say, well, aren't you just the cutest thing? And immediately your children think their hair is on fire. They start running to you at 3,000 miles an hour and they almost collapse your knee when they finally get you and grab you and they're like, save me, Right? And you're like, I'm sorry, they're not usually like this. And and it's that idea that I I want you to know that, yes, sin is scary. There are things to flee, but we are not just running from something. We're running to something. And the Father who embraces us and says, this is better. This is not just a flee youthful passions and desires. This is a run to righteousness, faith love, and peace. And so as we open this up, the outline is really just found right in the text. And the first point is this, we have to run from sin. Sin is destructive in its nature. We have to run from sin. Now when it comes to sin, it's important for us to make sure that we just remind ourselves of a few things. Like I told you, I used to think that sin was all relegated to my behavior. And I thought that sin was always when you did the stuff that you weren't supposed to do. But the reality is, sin is more than that. James 4, 17 says, it's not just what you do, it's also what you don't do. Romans 14 tells us anything that is not of faith is sin. And Ephesians 2 says, listen, sin is what you are by nature. And sin is destructive. It brings death. We have to run from sin. You see, when it comes to your sin, you you cannot manage sin. You have to mortify it and put it to death. You don't manage sin. We're lulled into thinking that perhaps some sin secretly hidden in the dark that doesn't affect anyone else, that we think we have it all under control and everything is fine. But when it comes into the light, you will find that it is a monster and a malady that is out of control and death is imminent. Sin can't be managed. It has to be put to death. We have to run from sin. When it comes to running from sin, one of the guys who disciples me, he gave me an important thing. He said, listen, he he called it halt. And, And he said, listen, John, here's the thing. When it comes to these things, I want you to halt. I want you just to stop. He said, if you're hungry, if you're angry, mash the two together and you get hangry. That's a thing. If you're hungry, if you're angry, if you're lonely, or if you are tired, he said, John, I want you to hit the pause button. Sin is close by. And I used to think, yeah, 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 okay, halt, whatever. But it's true. There are those moments for us when we're struggling with something else. We come home from the office frustrated at something that happened at the office, and suddenly our anger finds its target in Maybe our spouse or kids who didn't have anything to do with that situation. Sometimes when we find ourselves and our energy is depleted, perhaps we didn't have time to actually go and get something to eat because it was just one of those days and it was meeting to meeting and all those sorts of things. And so we're hungry and so our words may be a little sharp. 
and not really helpful. If you are in the depths of loneliness, those are places where sin might lurk close by. If you're tired and you haven't slept in a long time, that's probably not the place to make an important decision that may impact years to come. You see, when it comes to sin, we have to run from sin. It is deadly destructive. And when Paul writes about this and he says, flee these youthful passions or desires, sometimes we take our minds and we want to relegate that simply to some sort of uh, sexuality or sin associated with promiscuity or something like that. But that word desire, that's not the way that it is used. See, in this idea of youthful passions or desires, it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 7 when he says, listen, I I struggle in my life. The things that I don't want to do, that's exactly what I find myself doing. And instead of doing what I'm supposed to do, I'm doing what I don't want to do, and I find myself so frustrated. He said that it was because of covetousness. And he understood his desire. And I used to think, why, why, why did Paul put covetousness? I mean, you got a long list in there, and Paul was guilty of some extraordinary sins, condoning the murder of Stephen. But he writes covetousness because he wants us to understand when it comes to sin, sin starts on the inside from disordered desires. And Paul says, hey, listen, I I figured out it was a heart problem because, you know, you're not supposed to murder. Okay, great. Got that one. But coveting things, that's an inside discontent, lack of satisfaction, lack of trust in God. I need something else to be satisfied and complete. Jesus is not enough. We have to run from sin. You can't manage sin. You have to put it to death. And if you find yourself hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, just stop. Take a nap, get a snack, walk around the block a few times, whatever it takes. But know that sin is destructive. But we're not just running from sin. This is important. We're running to Jesus. We are running to Jesus. Because if you think that running from sin and fleeing these things is just about you doing your behavior modification, that's not what this is about. We have to run to Jesus. We will often try to leave our sin, but it's not just turning away from our sin and feeling guilty and staying all about how terrible we are and how we're never going to get it together. It is turning to Jesus and trusting, taking him at his word, this pursuing righteousness. And when it comes to righteousness, I want you to know righteousness is a position, uh, righteousness is a position. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God position in Christ Jesus. Righteousness is a position. This is one of the wonderful things about the gospel. The gospel is not about you getting it right all the time. The gospel is about Jesus rescuing sinners who don't get it right all the time. It is an astounding thing to me that in failures and patterns that I still struggle with in my life, that when my father looks at me, he still counts me righteous. He loves me on my worst day just like he loves me on my best day. 
Do not flee sin and think that you're going to fix yourself. Understand that when we pursue righteousness, this righteousness is a position for us, but don't think that it's also not a pursuit. Righteousness is also a pursuit, Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto you. Yes, righteousness is a position, but it is also a pursuit. We're not just running from sin. We're running to Jesus. See, our righteousness is found in him. It's just like we've sung for a long time in Christian circles. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But then he gives us the list. Faith, love, peace. When it comes to faith, I want you to know faith is seeing God. Faith is seeing God. Now, it seems like a little bit of like the Bible, like, is it talking about this? Is this a paradox? Is there some kind of dichotomy here? Because, you know, Jason pointed us earlier to Hebrews 11.1, and it talks about having this confidence and assurance in things not seen. If you read further in Hebrews chapter 11, it says something really weird. It says that Moses was looking forward to him who is invisible. I've never seen anybody invisible. Hence the definition of invisible right? So you say, okay, John, how can I be convinced of things that I cannot see? How is Moses looking forward to him who's invisible? It's what Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, that we're supposed to set our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. And you know what? I see Jesus all the time through his word. Can I tell you something else? I see Jesus all the time through you. I see him all the time in the beauty of creation. I see him in the faces of my children laughing. I, I, I see Jesus all the time. And when it comes to pursuing faith, it's seeing him and we must see him in his word. That's why Jesus said, you can't live by bread alone. You need every word. It's not an empty word. Moses said, this is your very life. Jesus said, you're going to be like me because of being in the word. Sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. True disciples make their home in the word, John 8, 31. When it comes to us knowing God and seeing God, faith is seeing God. And the primary way that we're going to see him is through his word. If we're going to pursue Christ together, I want you to know, this is a necessary activity for us. To simply open the scripture, to read it together, and to see what it tells us about who God is and who we are and how we are to live. Love. Love is about seeing others. If faith is about seeing God, love is about seeing others. In the book of 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, the Bible says this, By this we know love. How? He, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
Faith is seeing God. Love is seeing others. And I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I'm so selfish, I'm not paying attention to the people around me. It seems that sometimes I miss something that should be so obvious. It seems sometimes that I might even turn a blind eye to someone who may have need simply because I'm so caught up in my own drama, my own thoughts, my own feelings, my own stuff. And I'm not looking to see others. That's why we have to pursue Christ together. So if faith is seeing God and love is seeing others, I want you to know that peace is seeing our circumstances in light of Jesus. Peace is seeing our circumstances in light of Jesus. In John chapter 16, Jesus, getting ready to make his exit from this realm, tells his disciples, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome the world. He tells them, I'm going to leave my peace with you. You see, when it comes to us pursuing peace, it doesn't mean that your life may not get crazy or painful, that there won't be suffering. What it means is, because of the position and condition of our souls, that even in difficulty, chaos, suffering, we could still be at peace. Because we know that our good Father doesn't miss a thing. If a sparrow cannot fall from the sky and he does not see it, I can promise you this. His child whom he loves and has rescued, there is nothing that you are facing that he is not aware of. And I want you to know there is nothing that he is insensitive to. And he deeply feels for every single one of his children. It doesn't mean that everything around me is going to be peaceful, but it does mean that inside of me I can find peace. Fleeing from those things. Pursuing righteousness and faith and love and peace. Because I'm, I'm running away from sin, but I'm running to Jesus. And I want you to know, you're not going to pursue anything accidentally. It has to be intentional. In college, I saw this pretty little blonde thing one day. Her name was Allison. And it just so happened that we had an 8 o'clock New Testament class Monday, Wednesday, and Friday together. So, being smitten by this fair, lovely creature, I made it my practice to go over to the business building, tuck myself into the shrubs where I could see her dorm and wait. Until she descended the stairs. When she would descend the stairs, I knew that by the time she got to the fifth step, that if I went around the backside of the business building, I would land on the sidewalk at the same time she did. Which I did every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And we would walk to class, and I would ask her about how things were going. As a matter of fact, I was so smitten that when we got to class, she was one of those front row students that like, takes notes and brings all their stuff to class. I generally was a back row student who didn't even know we had class and had no idea where the pencil or the paper was, right? But because she was in the front of the class, and because she had a notebook and a pen, I had to try to learn to take notes. 
But I would sit beside her, you know, which would offer the opportunity just to talk to her a little bit more. Now, normally, I was not a morning person, and I had no desire to get up. But when smitten by one Allison Bolware, I got up early every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I put myself in just the right place, and then I walked just where I wanted to walk. Can I let you in on a little secret? That same kind of pursuit is what this verse is talking about. Putting yourself in the right place at the right time with the right people so we keep going in the same direction. You see, we're running from sin. We're running to Jesus, but we need to run together. We we need to run together. I need you, and and you need me. I need people who will love me enough to tell me the truth, who will point me to Jesus and will show me what his word says and say, John, let's follow Jesus together. Let's pursue Christ together. But we have to, that's not going to happen accidentally. The gathering of the saints on Sunday matters. It matters. It matters to God. Hebrews 10 says, I don't want you to forsake yourselves, to forsake one another in assembling yourselves. I, I want you to not only that, but I want you to consider how you might stir one another up to love and good deeds. Because there's some days when I'm tired. There's some days when I'm struggling. There's some days when I need you to sing what a beautiful name it is because I can't get the words out. There's some days that I need you to tell me, don't forget who Jesus is. There's some days that I need you to just put your arm around me and say, it's okay, just let it go, buddy. We'll cry for as long as you need to. You see, we've, we've put this to where this gathering of the saints, instead of a foretaste of heaven, instead of an immeasurable grace that flows to us just in being together, we've tried to make it just, is it convenient? Can I fit it in? Does it really matter? Do I have a better offer? Is there something more? Instead of seeing, I desperately need the people of God. This is not some cultural norm and social expectation because we're the polite church folk of the South. This is a grace that God has given us so that his grace can flow to me from you, so that you can remind me who Jesus is, so that you can call me to run from sin, so that you can tell me to run to Jesus, so that you can tell me, hey, you go ahead. I know you're busy, but get here next week because I want us to run together. We've reduced this to some sort of barely acquainted social group that checks the box that we belong to some church. Dear ones, we were made to be family. And I need you, family. This family of missionary servants sent to make disciples of Jesus Christ will not happen on accident. It'll be because we put ourselves in the right place at the right time with the right people headed in the right direction. In Christ's stead and in his power. We got to run together. And I need you to know, people have influence, and you're always being discipled. People have influence. Everyone is a disciple, and everyone is being discipled. The disciple maker of social media. The disciple maker of television. The disciple maker of the schoolhouse. The disciple maker of a job. The disciple maker of our 
group of friends, people have influence on us, and we're always being discipled. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Paul says, listen, I don't want you to be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. If you're like me, you know what it feels like when your kid comes home and they're like, hey, I hung out with so-and-so. And you're like, mm-mm, that is, mm-mm. I don't like their mama or their daddy. I don't, mm-mm, this is bad, right? Or you know what happens when they fall in with that crowd and suddenly this child that you know and that you love sounds differently, treats you differently, acts differently, goes to different places and does different things. I want you to know this is not some kind of control thing where you just try to strangle the life out of your kids. It is a Jesus thing saying that Jesus is offering you a better way and the people that you spend your time with matter. So you say, okay, John, I guess that means we're all going to lock ourselves up in white robes in the closet. We're never talking to non-Christians. That's not what Paul is saying at all. He's not saying, I want you to never talk or to uh, somebody who does not have faith in Jesus Christ or not be their friend. What he's saying is, listen, I want you to understand that when it comes to righteousness, faith, love, and peace, those will best be developed around Christian people. Those things matter. We're run, running with others. I want you to know that a community of faith is a necessary context for sanctification. If we're going to become like Jesus, we need a community of faith. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we run with others, as we recognize that the company we keep will have an impact, we need to make sure that we take advantage of the grace that God has given us and the means of the family of God. Say, okay, John, great, what do I do? I'll give you three things. One, I want you to know flight is part of the fight. Flight is part of fighting sin. Flee youthful passions. If you know that being in a certain place opens you up to the temptation of sin, don't go to that place. If you know that the people, that when you get with these people, you behave differently, then be careful about how much time you spend with those people. If you know that being lonely and isolated leads you into ways where you try to medicate in sinful, damaging ways, avoid it, run from it, flee from it, but don't run aimlessly, run to Jesus and tell him that you need his help. You can always approach his throne of grace with confidence because you will find help in your time of need. And no temptation has overtaken you, but such it is common to all men. With every temptation, God is faithful to provide a way of escape. Flight is part of fighting sin. Second thing, a successful pursuit comes through a powerful Savior by a powerful Holy Spirit. Successful pursuit comes because Christ has made me new and I've been crucified with him and I don't live anymore. He lives in me. 
And success in that pursuit comes through a powerful Savior by a powerful Spirit. And the last thing is to remember the company you keep impacts the way that you see. The company you keep impacts the way that you see. If you neglect gathering with other Christians and you spend all your time with people who do not believe and do not have faith, don't be so naive to think that it won't have an impact on you. Whether it's seeing people who sold millions of Christian books leaving their wife and their faith, or people who have written songs that give the church her voice saying, I'm not sure I'm a Christian anymore. I want you to know that the company that you keep will have an impact on the way that you see, whether it's faith, the way that you see God, whether it's love, the way that you see others, whether it's peace, the way that you see your circumstances in light of Jesus. Be wise about those things. And here's the good news. It doesn't matter if you're a religious hypocrite an atheist, an agnostic, whether you're a skeptic, you got questions or doubts, or you're just trying to figure out how to put the pieces of a life that seems shattered back together, there is a God who in mercy and grace rescues broken, weak, pitiful sinners and makes them family. Not only does he make them family, but he gives them something better. So when you flee from sin and repentance, when you run to Jesus for his righteousness and his grace, part of the way that he will sustain you is through this family. So this morning, I don't know what's going on in your life. There'll be some folks at both of the tables here. And if you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If there's something else that you need assistance with, we'd love to do that. Whatever God's calling you to do, obey. You'll never be disappointed in obedience. Run from sin. Run to Jesus. Come run with us. A family of missionary servants sent to make disciples of Jesus Christ.